Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. In this episode, I talk to Levi West about terrorism in Australia. Levi is the Director of Terrorism Studies at Charles Sturt University. We're changing the format a bit for this one. We ended up having quite a long conversation, so we've split it into two separate episodes. In this first episode, we talk about terrorism in Australia from the 1960s up until around 2013, just before the rise of ISIS, and we focus on how the threat in Australia has been shaped by international developments in order to place the Australian situation into its global context. In the episode after this, we discuss terrorism in Australia after 2013 and also cover some of the debates about counterterrorism measures. Enjoy. Hi, Levi. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Cool. So we're doing a bit of a different format this time where it's not a straight out Q&A and our theme is understanding terrorism in Australia. To understand terrorism in Australia, I think you need to look at the history quite a bit because a lot of what we're currently going through isn't as new as it might seem. So I'd like you to start it just with a brief overview of sort of the history of terrorism. Then we might get on to how Australia was affected by that. Yeah, so, you know, I think one of the most effective ways of, of thinking about and understanding the general history of terrorism, which, like you said, it's sort of impossible to understand Australia's history of terrorism without contextualising it into what is a global problem. So one of the best places to start is David Rappaport's seminal piece called The Four Ways of Terrorism. It provides us with a really useful kind of framework that's relatively straightforward um, and particularly helpful in trying to understand the way that terrorism changes and also the way that it stays the same. In part, it's useful to point out at this point too, that despite the hyperbole and the sort of excitement about the amazing and substantial use of social media by groups like the Islamic State, Terrorism looks pretty much the same, in fact strikingly similar to the way that it looked in Roman-occupied Jerusalem in about 62 AD where people were wandering around with knives stabbing people. It looks awfully similar to the way that it is now. So remembering that the use of violence for ideological purposes is a pretty consistent component of terrorism. The thing that changes is the context and the ideological motivation and all these types of things. So we should just clarify how we're defining terrorism here, which I think would be essentially mm. non-state violence for political purpose. Yeah to intimidate a wider audience than the immediate target. Yeah, the instrumentality is, is pretty important um, and the, the sort of use of a, of a third party, namely an audience of some description. Um, and I guess the only difference that I'd make is that for ideological purposes, not necessarily overtly, specifically political. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. But, you know, generally speaking, I think a sensible conceptualisation of terrorism is, is, is pretty straightforward. So the four ways of terrorism as a basic idea posits that we've lived in modern terrorist history through four primary periods of terrorist activity. And that starts with anarchist terrorism in the late 1800s in Tsarist Russia, which culminates in about 1920 with the assassination of President McKinley in the United States and the use of the first car bomb outside of Wall Street targeting Goldman Sachs. Um, we then shift into a period of anti-colonial terrorism, which was largely uh, post-first but also second, mostly Second World War period of terrorist activity, which was largely terrorism as part of mostly insurgency campaigns. Um, and the interesting thing about that period of terrorism is that it's where we start to see terrorism being done in something that looks a little bit more like a cause that we could sort of support. The Western world had come to see colonial occupation of countries. It's not quite the same way as we did when we colonised them. So it often gained quite a bit of sympathy. 
Yeah, certainly in the Western in the Western context, we started to not necessarily. It got called terrorism a lot less. Yeah, that's where we see the emergence of the idea of freedom fighters start to kick in. Uh, the next wave is generally referred to broadly as the wave of new left terrorism. Um, and this encompasses things like the Weather Underground in the United States, the Beta Meinhof gang in Germany, but also most importantly, secular Palestinian terrorist organisations. Um, this sort of culminates in about the 1970s. Uh, strictly speaking, I think that wave stops about 1979. In 1979, the Iranian Revolution happens. In 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. And I think from recollection, it is the start of a new Islamic millennium. And these things combined gave birth to a the fourth wave, which is generally viewed as the wave of religious terrorism. And importantly, religious terrorism, not explicitly Islamic terrorism. And over that generation or wave, and um, we see not just the emergence of jihadist terrorism, which comes to dominate the, the space, but also the emergence of things. Like, and we can categorise into this on Shinriko in Japan. So millennarian terrorism is yeah. sort of the alternative term for it. This also includes the wave of abortion clinic bombings and killings of abortion doctors in the, you know, in the United States in the 90s and some of the first proper kind of right-wing Jewish terrorism, separate from what may or may not be terrorism in the mid-1940s and the establishment of Israel, um, of, of far right-wing terrorism yeah. in Israel and Jewish terrorism. So when Barack Goldstein massacred um, a bunch of worshippers from Mosque in Palestine yeah, in 93, yeah. I think. Yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah. So that, that, that basic framework of sort of anarchist, anti-colonial, new left, religious, and the useful thing about the wave as the analogy is that these are not rigid distinctions. It's not like anarchism stops yeah. and then suddenly this new form of terrorism emerges. Is that there's overlap between the two. Some of the key characteristics that Rappaport writes about is that what makes up the wave is that the ideology or a version of the ideology spreads globally, or at least what globally is at the time. So with anarchist terrorism, that's from Russia into Europe, or right across Europe and then across the United States. And that's, that's the world at the time. Um, as far as they're concerned. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, of course, of course. And the other thing is that tactically, there's, you, can, you can watch similarities. Um, so, and, and, and it's also useful too. So if you go back and you look at the anarchist terrorist wave that occurred in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, you have a broad ideological banner with people largely individually undertaking actions and there's a document called The Science of Revolutionary Warfare written by a guy by the name of Johann Most, who was a German in the United States who was an anarchist that teaches you how to make <laughs> explosive devices and a lot of the guys who were undertaking acts had criminal backgrounds they undertake a violent act and then when they got pinged, they oh yes, I'm an anarchist, I'm an anarchist. Yeah. And I hope I don't need to point out the disturbing similarities of that particular pattern of, of terrorist activity with some of the stuff that's going on now. So when we think about the history of terrorism in Australia, which certainly doesn't quite reach back as far as, as anarchist stuff, um, it's useful to know that whilst terrorism in its core remains fundamentally the same, the motivators, the way people go about their business, the way they use tactics, and the, why the role of technology in the equation is the thing that makes it different each time around. So that's sort of a useful place to start, I think, in, in thinking about how terrorism changes and evolves. It evolves. Yeah. It hasn't been revolutionised ever since it started back in Roman occupied Jerusalem. Yeah. It's, it's the same idea. Okay. So returning that to Australia, We've similarly had terrorism evolve in Australia, and we've had a bit going on here since the 1960s, 
usually no more than one or two people killed in any particular action, yeah. which is why often we don't think of Australia as having had a history of terrorism. But if we look at um, sort of more modern history since the 1960s, we've had a few different things going on tied to sort of, I'd say both the anti-colonial and the new left wave. Mm-hmm. So particularly we had stuff involving um, Yugoslav-related terrorism, mm-hmm. PLO, uh, Nandamaga, and um, Armenian revolutionary groups. Mm-hmm. So in the 1960s, we had a number of Croatian nationalist groups, yeah, yeah, some of which were Ustasha, neo-fascist groups, yep. attempted incursions into Yugoslavia to overthrow Tito's regime. Mm-hmm. Not that different to some of the stuff we've recently seen in foreign fighters. And some of them also attacked a number of Yugoslav-associated targets in Australia, yep. like embassies and things like that. But this is often quite contested because there's also evidence of Yugoslav intelligence services being behind some of this yeah. to divide and discredit the opposition. And there is still, it's quite contested, even recent official histories of ASIO yeah. and, as, and recently with Tony Jones making mention of on Q&A yeah. of exactly who attacked what in which time period because yeah. not many of these cases were solved. No. But essentially there were Croatian nationalists and communist Yugoslav intelligence behind a number of actions in Australia. Then we had some of the people associated with the Anandamaga religious sect were carrying, and you should clarify, of course, mm-hmm. none of this was unique to Australia. So we had some of this Croatian nationalist stuff was happening, particularly in Austria, in Germany, yeah. in the United States as well. Yeah. Australia is just another place that could be used as a base of support. Similarly, after the leader of this religious sect in India, Anandamaga, was mm-hmm. arrested, some of their members attacked um, Indian diplomats and such across the world, including in Australia. Um, the most serious action someone that was someone was convicted over and, and had the conviction upheld mm-hmm. was um, a stabbing of an Indian diplomat and a attempted kidnapping, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they were the group who were also the prime suspect for the Hilton bombing, but no one, responsibility was never proven for that. There were some mm-hmm. wrongful convictions that followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, according to the recent history of ASIO, the belief was that it was some members of the Anandamaga sect, but not necessarily the ones that they arrested. Yeah. But we really don't know. No. no. That's not uncommon in no. this space. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. We also had some uh, stuff by Palestinian nationalist groups in Australia. It's believed that members of Black September sent letter bombs to a number of uh, Jewish political figures and mm-hmm. Israeli diplomats in Australia. Members of some different factions of the PLO came to Australia at various points and arrested and sent back. Uh, and then in 1982, the Israeli consulate in Sydney and a Jewish club also in Sydney were bombed. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one was killed, thanks to where um, where the bombs were placed. They were placed yeah. poorly. Yeah. And I think that case was recently reopened, like a couple of years ago, when some new evidence was uncovered. And we also had Armenian groups uh, who murdered the uh, Turk- a Turkish diplomat and his bodyguard in 1980 and uh, carried out a bombing against Turkish diplomat diplomatic facility in 1986, I believe. So we had all that sort of stuff going on. We also had a bit of new left, uh, either terrorism or violent extremism, if you don't think it reached the point of terrorism, in the late 60s, from about 69 to 72. Uh, so some things like a group that called itself the People's Liberation Army kind of modelled itself on the weather underground. Yeah. And at times they fired uh, shots, like fired bullets, at conscription officers and things like that. But they were very, very ineffective. Yeah. Nothing like the new left terrorism you had no. in, you know, with the Red Brigades or Barnumite or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These, I don't think they successfully... And they were tramping um, off to Palestine to get special training. Or <laughs> no, no, not, not that's really known of. Yeah. Uh, and then the na- 1980s, 
we had a bit of far-right violent extremism, which at some points reached the level of terrorism, mm-hmm. I would say. We had Jack Van Tongren's yeah, Australian Nationalist yeah, Movement, yeah. which I think firebombed four Chinese restaurants in Perth, Perth yeah. outright bombed one of them, so behind many bashings, behind many burglaries, yeah. murdered one of their own members they suspected of being an informant, and there were numbers of bashings and burnings and murders that were believed to be inspired by them. And when the judge sentenced them, he said, I, almost word for word, it's no exaggeration to call what you did a terrorist campaign. Yeah. And I should clarify also, in the 1980s, across the West, we're seeing quite a rise of far-right terrorism, yeah. um, in contrast to the sort of far-left terrorism we're seeing in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. Where does far-right stuff fit into David Rappaport's four waves, or is that a shortcoming and it doesn't fit in? Um, he, he doesn't sort of explicitly distinguish for right-wing terrorism. Yeah, and, and I think in part, and I'm, I'm sort of guesstimating I suppose as to as to how it can fit is that some aspects so the um, Christian identity movement in the US and much of the right wing movement in the US yeah. has a big religious component to it yeah, so even the militia movements sovereign citizens not so much but the militia movements certainly yeah. the Christian identity movement and depending on which branch of white supremacy or skinheadism <laughs> yeah. you're attached to you may well have a bunch of Nordic mythology yeah. uh, mythology attached to it or whatever so there's a way for it to fit into yeah. and creatorism the yeah, church yeah, of creativity yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. there's a way for it to fit comfortably I think in, in the religious terrorism wave um, it doesn't fit in the new left wave but if we think about that new left wave as something that's not necessarily explicitly a reference to left wing as it is to a kind of the world is beginning to globalise and we are resisting against this particular manifestation of modernization and everything else, then I think you could kind of twist it a fair way and get to a very taut bow. But there's a way that that kind of right-wing terrorism, they both share a, a kind of anti-direction of the world agenda. Yeah. yeah, this is moving too far away from the thing that we think it ought to be like. Um, but I think it probably sits more in the religious camp than anything else. Um, from memory, at least, he doesn't explicitly discuss it. Um, I think the thing with right-wing terrorism too, you know, Western context, and I've spoken about this in other con- in other other forums, is that one of the things that makes jihadist terrorism, and I use that as a very, very blunt shorthand for what I would technically refer to as violent global salafist jihadism, well, the, one of the reasons that jihadism jars Western sensibility so much is it is such an anathema, that the politics of it are such an anathema, whereas I can do something on a spectrum of Western politics where in, in the Australian setting I can go from the centre of a political spectrum and if I want to move to the right, I can go to the Liberal Party and then I can find the far right wing of the Liberal Party, which I think we all know what that looks like, and I can move further out and I can find Pauline Hanson and then I can find the United Patriots Front and then I can find old mate that got arrested the other week in Melbourne. And so, you know, far-right terrorism is an extension of existing Western politics. So it seems like far less of a a sort of jarring shock to the system. The violence is is uncomfortable when everyone doesn't like the violence. But the politics is not... Well, certainly it's not seen as an attack on our society. No. It's an attack on a part of the community. Um, Whereas if it's coming externally, it's perceived more as an attack on us, more as war. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why we don't spend as much time analysing it, and we don't spend as much time looking at it, and the literature certainly doesn't pay near near as much attention to it academically, um, is because it's just... it, it Also coupled with the fact that 
generally speaking, right-wing terrorist organisations have been far less effective at what they do than jihadist terrorist organisations. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if we look at what's happening in the Middle East right now, right-wing terrorist organisations haven't recast the map of one of the most strategically important parts of the world any time recently. No, they haven't conquered their, their global consequences are, are, are far less significant. That um, They tend to have much more discrete objectives that are at the most nation-state bounded. Um, so they don't fit in quite so easily. I think the thing that, I was, that sort of struck me from that, that potted history of Australian terrorism is that none of those incidents happen without the global context. None of them are indigenously inspired. Yeah, They're all a function of motivations from beyond Australian borders. Yeah. yeah, it's not that someone was so upset about something that was going on in Australia, specifically in relation to Australian politics or Australian society, that they felt that they needed to start a terrorist organisation or blow something up. There are bits where it gets blurred, though. Mm. So, attacks on conscription officers. That one, yes. But the, the least, like yeah. the, the farthest away from what we would easily and comfortably call a terrorist attack. Um, and, and I think that's held since then. Yeah. yeah, is that overwhelmingly all of the terrorist activity in Australia is motivated by ideologies from overseas or organisations from overseas, and and I think that's something that we we should ought to keep in mind when when we think about it. All right, so let's talk a, talk a bit about terrorism in the nineties and the development of Al Qaeda and such, because that's when it really changed to becoming the post nine eleven world that we know today, yeah. and away from all the old, you know. We no longer, when we think of terrorism now, we no longer go, oh, IRA, oh, PLO, everything like that. No. Let's talk about that. No, and, and I think if we if we pull some stuff out of Rappaport's fourth wave, so out of what we know about and understand about religious terrorism, there's some really significant changes that take place by virtue of the shift in motivation. Um, one of the big ones is that a terrorist organisation no longer seeks material, tangible objectives. Right. So if I have an IRA guy and he takes a bunch of people hostage... I can negotiate with him about prisoners being released in exchange for hostages. I can technically tell the British government to leave Ireland. And whilst that obviously was never going to happen, it was feasible that the objectives of the IRA strategically could have actually been met and their raison d'etre disappears. With a religiously motivated terrorist organisation, much of what they seek relates to the afterlife or at least to the transcendental. And that means that I can't give them what they want and that means that negotiating, whether in a discrete sort of hostage scenario or d- negotiating at the strategic level, like back channel stuff was done with the IRA, I, I, I can't give you what you're after. I mean, you look at ISIS, right? One of the objectives is bringing on the apocalypse. I, I, I can kind of help you with that in the sense that you perceive me heavily involving myself in the Middle East as helping bring it on, but I can't actually give you what you're after. And this complicates the whole environment dramatically. Um, I think as far as what we saw in Australia, we see the beginnings of AQ and JI affiliated actors in Australia. Um, I think you know much more about that than I do in terms of detail. Um, And I think the beginnings of the first sort of targeted and, 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 and focused counter efforts to try and begin to get a grasp on what was happening with all of this. And in 93, we see the first World Trade Bomber, like yeah. World Trade Center bombing in the United States. And, you know, as an active member of the Five Eyes, we will have begun to be seized yeah. by this emerging threat. Five Eyes being the intelligence alliance between yeah. UK, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Yes. 
So I, I think, you know, regardless of the scale of what was happening here at the time, which was relatively low, you know, I think we we're counting sort of you know singular actors almost. Um, <clears throat> we would have been, we were, um, reasonably well briefed into what was going on in the United Kingdom and in the United States. I think at that stage, Canada would have been about as low as activity was here. But you know, there's a solid network in the United States, and coupled with the fact that we knew we had people in Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah, there was a substantial cohort, or well, I think we should well, probably call it a not inconsequential cohort of Australians who went to Afghanistan and, and fought with the Mujahideen. Um, so the relevant agencies would have been aware of that and would have been starting to think about, just like we are now, okay, what do we do? These guys are all going to come back, we assume, or some of them will, um, and we are going to have a cohort of people here that we need to manage from a counterterrorism perspective. So, And now we have no doubt from the past track record that some of them will likely turn out to be dangerous. Well, in fact, in the Australian context, far more of them will turn out to be dangerous than the rest of the world's statistics on things. Yeah. <laughs> I think, is it, is it Hank Hammer's 1 in 9 or 1 in 10 is the global... Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Whereas here, some, those 90% of the people who went to Afghanistan wound up involved in terrorist activity. Yeah, yes. Yeah, um, there's, there's, there's this figure that we often hear um, attributed to ASIO. I think 30 Australians between 1990 mm -hmm. and 2010 were believed to have changed with groups in Afghanistan, presumably Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. and Pakistan, which I think was mainly Lashkar-e-Toyba, mm -hmm. of which I think about eight have been convicted of terrorism offences, mm -hmm. and 25 were suspected of being involved in terrorist activity on return. Yeah, yeah. which when we compare that to the, the global figures on people who went to Afghanistan and returned back to their home countries, it's grossly out of sync yes. with what's happened everywhere else. Um. So I want to talk a little bit more about the shift of the type mm -hmm. of terrorism within Australia. So in the 1990s, um, while we had Al-Qaeda and that developing, things by most accounts appeared to go sort of quiet in Australia. Um, we have basically a lot of the creation stuff was all over, mm -hmm. uh, particularly a, a creation state was developed. Mm -hmm. Similarly, an Armenian state came about and you weren't seeing Armenian terrorism. It's funny how that works. About. Exactly. <laughs> um, similarly, we weren't having PLO terrorism anymore. Mm -hmm. There was uh, a peace process again, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Didn't always go that well, but it did mean the Palestinian PLO essentially became the Palestinian Authority. Yes. So there wasn't much transnational PLO activity anymore. No. Um, and and Margaret, that stuff had all died down ages ago. But there were, as you're saying, these sort of new types of terrorism, often more religiously motivated and with more transcendental goals. And they were still carrying out attacks in Western countries, and if anything, killing people in larger numbers. Mm. So we had a number of significant mass casualty attacks going on in the West in the 90s. There was the first World Trade Center bombing you mentioned mm -hmm. in 1993. It didn't kill many people, but was planning to... Tried to. Not, yeah, exactly. Tried to kill thousands. The plan was to knock one tower over mm -hmm. into the other. Uh, similarly, in, I think, 1995, we had... The Oklahoma bombing, yes, of course. Um, which killed over 160, oh, was it? over 100 people at least, yeah, yeah. from a far right extremist, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. And then around within two weeks of the Oklahoma bombing, I mean it was before or afterwards, we had Um Shinyoku, which was the um, the cult in Japan, yeah. which murdered people with sarin gas at a uh, subway in Tokyo. Uh, so these were new groups. wasn't very successful, but attempted to kill an awful lot of people. But yes. The objective was mass casualty. Yes, yeah. so there, was, there was a lot of talk of super terrorism at the time, because yeah. previous groups, it was previously said groups want a lot of people watching, not a lot of people dead. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. it was more there were groups emerging that wanted a lot of people watching and a lot of people yes. dead. And all three of these sort of strands, jihadist, far-right, and even Om Shinyoko, yeah. had some manifestations in Australia. 
So Um Umshinoko tested some of their biological and chemical weapons on sheep in the Kimberleys. Similarly, uh, there was some far-right stuff here. So Timothy McVeigh was inspired by a book called The Turner Diaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, That book was extremely popular among the Australian nationalist movement. Um, They were distributing it to a large number of people, things like that. And we also had some militias in Australia that were very small and effectual, but tried to model themselves in part on some of the American militias. There are groups, I think, uh, the Loyal Regiment of Australian Guardians, Australians United for Survival Independence, um, Christians Speaking Out may have been another one. Um, They were particularly concerned about John Howard and gun control. And uh, they would have various theories that this was part of a plot working with the United Nations to disarm Australians so the Indonesia could invade and things like that. (laughs) Yeah, and similarly, we also had some jihadist stuff here. So at this point, a Australian branch of Jamal Islami had developed. Uh, that group would go on to blow up Bali, yeah. um, but, well, blow up the hotels in Bali, um, but they weren't on the intelligence radar at all at that point. Yeah. We had a few Australians, as mentioned, going to train in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And we also had a terrorist plot that's often forgotten about uh, involving a guy called Jack Roche. He, um, he was a member of Jamal Islamia's Australian branch. He went over to Afghanistan. He was asked by senior al-Qaeda figures to come back and do some reconnaissance and prepare for attacks Mm -hmm. on the Israeli embassy in Canberra, the Israeli consulate in Sydney, and the house of a prominent Jewish businessman in in Melbourne. And he came down, he undertook some activities for that, but the plot completely fell apart, in part because of disputes within Mm Jamoslamia between the people who led the Australian branch and Hambali, who led a different branch. He was later involved in the Bali bombings, and he was undercutting the authority of the Australian branch. Um, but also Jack Roche himself got cold feet and called up ASIO and tried to tell them about the plot at one point. The whole thing fell apart. And so at this point, though, Australia seemed to be, like, in some ways almost sort of insulated and oblivious to the threat. And then that all kind of changed after 9-11. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, just picking up on that insulated from threat, is that up until really sort of post-Bali almost, and even Bali itself, the geography of Australia, for in security terms, is one of its singular greatest assets. It's a difficult place to get to, especially if you're trying to do that in any other way than coming through the gates with your passport, right? Um, you can't smuggle weapons easily into the country. You can't smuggle people into the country easily. Um, it's, it's an enormous asset from a defensive security perspective. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why things here have always been slightly less than they are in the rest of the world. Um, <clears throat> but post 9-11, even starting with simple things like the fact that Howard was in DC when it happened, um, seized the relevant apparatuses of the Australian government, separate from whether or not UN resolutions got passed to you know, impair, um, implore everyone to pass relevant legislation and take appropriate measures and everything else. Australia was well and truly there uh, immediately anyway. Um, <clears throat> I think some of the most important things that happen, uh, explicit terrorism offences are introduced which by my understanding at least there wasn't beforehand. No, from my understanding we had no specific counterterrorism legislation no. with one possible exception. I read somewhere there was some piece of obscure state legislation that had the word terrorism in it or okay. something like that. Yeah. But otherwise, no. essentially none. And it's kind of because we had none beforehand that we had a huge wave afterwards, which has often been called um, by one international jurist, hyper-legislation. A wave that has largely continued. Yes. And we, we have more legislation relating to counter-terrorism in our books than most jurisdictions. Yeah. Um, which, 
for the most part, it's, it's, it's relatively defensible legislation, but some of it, I think, is, is sort of touching the edges. Uh, let's not go into that, because yeah, no. I have about 200 different opinions, and that would be a whole other episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so, um, but I think we really get seized when Bali happens. Yeah. You know, the immediate after post 9-11 stuff saw us introduce a whole policy, set of policy frameworks, funding, legislation, and all those types of things, but it's Bali that really, I think, seizes the public, yeah. rather than the, you know, inside Canberra apparatus, um, that it makes terrorism against Australians a tangible and real threat. And they're not just Bali, but the repeated yeah. attacks. Jakarta Marriott in 2003, the embassy bombing in 2004. Yeah. in Indonesia um, is what really starts to pull all of that together and make Australia really understand that even though they might not be blowing stuff up in Sydney or Melbourne, but one of the things about a globalised world and about globalised terrorism is that we have interests all over the world and we're not necessarily as responsible for defending them in other parts of the world as we are here and that we don't have control over how all of those things take place. Um, and so, sort of post-Bali, we really, really start to see a ratcheting up of the, the counter-terrorism apparatus, of the funding that's associated with it. Um, so I, I think that, you know, the, the marker in the sand that 9-11 is to America, Bali clearly is to Australia. Yeah. Um, because unlike a place like the United Kingdom, who had been dealing with terrorism domestically for decades prior to 2001, Australia had not had that sort of yeah. history of experience. As discussed, the ones here killed one or two people yeah. in the worst attacks. Yeah, and, yeah. and most importantly, I think too, because I think there's, you know, there's a, the, the theatrical component of terrorism, none of them have been giant explosions. No. Big explosions. Hilt on the side. Yeah, but big explosions make a big difference. It's why the low-tech, low-capability stuff that we're seeing now is just not the same. Big explosions and high body counts are far more tangible to the public, whilst us as a bunch of terrorism analysts can sit there and understand and appreciate that there's actually a sophisticated system behind all these people stabbing people. That's not what the TV communicates. So... You know, to me, Bali is really the point at which Australia is, is, is properly grabbed and seized by, by terrorism. Yeah. And so, of course, there's a response to terrorism, and then the terrorists also respond. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda reaches out more globally, starts to get more affiliates across the world. Uh, a number of its strategists start to call for people to carry out attacks themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's al-Suri and things like mm-hmm. that. And also, the war on terror becomes part of the domestic political atmosphere in Western countries, yeah. including yeah. Australia. And this can then basically play into radicalisation mm-hmm. and lead um, to some more numbers of people turning to terrorism. So we start to see then an upsurge of this in Australia. Um, so we see sort of a takeoff in jihadist terrorism. There was some, a little bit going on in the 90s, mm. but then we start to see more. We didn't, don't really see much more travel to Afghanistan mm. ever since you know, America goes in there. Mm. That's less hospitable. A number of Westerners start travelling to Pakistan, but not that many Australians. Relating to the border security issue earlier, it's a hard country to get into, but it's also a hard country to leave if the government doesn't want you to leave, and if they take your passport away or arrest the person who's going to facilitate you out, because we're in Ireland, we have a few entry and exit points. Mm -hmm. But we do have a number of Australians at this point going and joining groups in Lebanon, about uh, two dozen or so, um, joining groups there, Azbat al-Ansar, Fatah al-Islam, things like that. A number of Australians from around 2006-2009 joined Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Mm-hmm. 
that sort of died down a bit though after a support network here was uh, disrupted. But also um, a lot of the initial popularity was because Ethiopia invaded Somalia and Al-Shabaab sort of presented itself as a national resistance. Yeah. Then um, Al-Shabaab's sheen sort of died away, particularly when they started killing aid workers and making the famine worse and things like that. Uh, we also had a small number of Australians going and joining um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. But we're talking about dozens or so people involved yeah. at this point. What we also see, though, is an upsurge in plots. So around 2003, a plot involving Lashkri Toiba was foiled, mm. uh, involved a guy called Faham Lodi here, a, guy, a French guy called Willy Bajet, and the guy who's, who ran most of it from Pakistan, uh, Sajid Mir, later became one of the master, masterminds of the um, Mumbai massacre in 2008. We then had uh, the plot foiled by Operation Pendennis, this is sometimes it's described as two different plots. Mm. I think it's better to think of it as one plot involving two different cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was disrupted in 2005, one cell in Melbourne, one cell in Sydney. Uh, one member of it had trained with Al-Qaeda, a few others had trained with Lashkri Toiba, yeah. and they were planning to attack uh, various targets. We don't know exactly what, uh, but they'd acquired bomb-making chemicals, bomb-making instructions, mm-hmm. uh, I think laboratory equipment, several firearms, sort yeah. of ammunition, things like that. They were arrested and jailed. And then in 2009, we had a plot that was a bit different, which was um, uh, forward in Operation Neath, and it was a Holsworthy Barracks plot. Mm-hmm. Some people who were um, affiliated with Al-Shabaab in Somalia, low in communication with them, were planning to carry out a mass shooting in an army barracks. And what's interesting with this is that some of the people who initially planned to go join Al-Shabaab had their passports taken mm-hmm. and then decided to carry out something here, which is one of the first times we start to see this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's also relevant here is that none of them had trained in Afghanistan or Pakistan, which is unlike all the previous jihadist plots we had. Yeah. So at this point, you can see the jihadist threat becoming more diversified. Yeah. And also the tactic was different. This yeah. is the first one where they weren't going, oh, look, there's other guys overseas are blowing stuff up. Let's yeah. try and blow something up. Yeah. They were choosing something more feasible. And a tactic arguably drawing quite heavily on um, so the underpinning tactic of Mumbai is what's called a Fedayeen attack, which is a Lashkri Toiba trademark in Kashmir, which is to breach, ideally, a military or police installation, siege the installation, force your adversary to then damage their own installation trying to get you out of there. And what it does religiously is that there's a chance that you can survive. And thus, in terms of selling the, it's, it's not an, it's, it doesn't require you to absolutely die to, for the attack to be successful. So on the suicide question, in the religious context, it's easier to say, it's suicidal, you are not going to survive. But once you've engaged your adversary, you're defending yourself now, and that your death is a result of you engaging in conflict and battle, rather than it being an implicit requirement of your attack tactic. So there's a, the last crew have done it for years, particularly in Kashmir, because it inflicts damage on installations. And the term was popularised in the 70s, I think, by Palestinians. And it, it, it has a long, long history back in, in the, 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 the long history of, of Islam um, as, a, as a broader conceptualisation of a particular type of attack. Um, but in, in Kashmir, Lashkri Toba did it for a long, long time, and that basically breached siege and hold you know, idea that Mumbai sort of takes and multiplies out. And Holdsworthy arguably is, is draws heavily on this idea of if we can get in, then someone's going to have to do damage to their own capability and incur cost and everything else to get us out. 
Yeah. Ambitious in the holes where the case. Very, very <laughs> ambitious. Um, but in the Kashmir ones, it works beautifully. And in Mumbai, it's, it's sort of perfected. Um, so, you know, it's obviously the evolution and, and learning amongst terrorist organisations, which is part of the globalisation of the problem, is that all of a sudden you start to see organisations, they watch what's going on in other parts of the world. By this stage, they're probably starting to hang out on forums, which means that you've got jihadists sharing information because forums didn't tend to be acronym exclusionary. You weren't on an AQAP forum, you were on a jihadist forum, and that meant that people were sharing information about how to do stuff. Yeah, though particular forums were often aligned with particular groups. We saw jumping ahead a bit yeah. with the Al Qaeda ISIS split. Yeah. A lot of the forums took sides. Yes, but yes. generally but they weren't run by the organisation. That's right. It doesn't preclude me as a user of the forum from accessing it because yeah. it's an AQ affiliated one or an AQAP affiliated one. Yeah, is it providing me with the information that I deem to be useful for my purposes? Yes. yes. And I will tell the forum administrator what he needs to hear so that I can get onto it. Yeah. So. Yeah. That globalisation of the problem starts to really kick off post two thousand and one, but then particularly yeah. so in the mid two thousands, and then Iraq happens. And yeah, I think um, a particular thing here as well is that uh, there was a shift that hadn't happened by the time of the Holsworthy attack, mm-hmm. and I wonder if things would have gone differently otherwise. And this is that they were seeking permission yeah. from some Al Shabaab affiliated yeah. imams in Somalia for the attack, and it's unclear if they would have gone ahead without permission. Mm-hmm. And this came up in the court case, um, but you know, nonetheless, they were still guilty of a crime. You're not meant to conspire on something and say, oh, I may not have gone through if the guy didn't let me. Um, but what's you could try. It didn't work out for them. They did try. Um, and the uh, thing is, though, Inspire magazine didn't exist at this point. No. Nor did you have a... Uh, ISIS, ISIS did not exist, well, in its current incarnation, and you didn't have them calling for anyone to go carry out attacks. No. Whereas in Spy Magazine emphasised, carry out an attack. Do not ask permission. Yeah. Do not feel you have to travel to a country. Do not feel you have to communicate with an established group. Yeah. Attack right away. And I wonder if Inspire Magazine came out a couple of years earlier. Mm-hmm. Holesworthy Barracks plots may not have wasted so much time trying to get permission. Yeah, and yeah, things may have gone differently. And I think too is that one of the things that happens when you start shopping around for religious permissibility. Yeah. Is you start opening yourself up for, for interdiction. Yes, right. someone's going to notice. The Some of those people are going to be on a watch list. The, the idea that Inspire magazine and Al-Aliki more broadly um, advocate and a key component of, of individual jihadist terrorism is operational security. Right? If, if what I'm encouraging you to do is get up tomorrow morning with your phone and a black flag and a kitchen knife, well, until tomorrow morning, you haven't decided to do that. And that means that for me, as a CT agency, well, there's no intelligence for me to collect on that. Yeah, you can read Inspire magazine like a whole bunch of other people, but until you actually decide to get up and grab the kitchen knife, there's nothing I can do. And its its purpose is operational security. No, this is because we haven't taken the approach that the UK has, yeah. and I think this is a good thing that we haven't, um, where it's not a crime in itself to download Inspire magazine. No. The way our law works, it can be a crime, if you download Inspire magazine to help someone out with a terrorist attack and you know of that purpose, but downloading it in of itself mm-hmm. is not a crime yeah. yet. New possession is not an offence. Yeah. Intent is essentially what yeah. you need to demonstrate, that you are going to use the contents of that magazine, and not just Inspire specifically, but, but any range of, you, know, you can have a copy of Management of Savagery or our Suri stuff, I suspect, probably qualifies too, um, material content. 
the, the other thing we need to demonstrate is that you actually plan to do something with that. Yeah. Unlike in the UK where your possession is an offence. Yeah, which in my view is an injustice. That goes too far. I think so too. I think um, we've raised also a few names here that we should probably elaborate on. Alaki, um, Al Suri, and you mentioned the management of Savagery, which is yeah. by Al Naji. Yeah. Um, do you want to go into them a bit? Yeah, so Al Alaki and Al Suri and Al Naji, I would argue, are probably the three most important people in the jihadist universe. Um, from my perspective, almost more important than, than Bin Laden or Zawahiri or Baghdadi, for that matter. Um, we'll start with Al-Suri, I think. So, Abu Musab Al-Suri, which is his nom de guerre, I can't remember his original name, Mustafa something, um, is a Syrian who has red hair and blue eyes, which is interesting. Um, and he is probably the single most important jihadist strategist. Um, he is novel for a number of reasons, but primarily because he wrote a book that was 1,600 pages worth that wasn't theological. And when he did that, that was significant. Most of the jihadist writings that had been produced had been heavy on theological content and religious permissibility and justification of what they were doing. Um, <clears throat> our Suri's book was overwhelmingly a critical history of the jihadist movement. Um, and he tried to unpack why, since what 1928, Muslim Brotherhood was established, yeah. why they had been consistently unsuccessful in achieving their objectives. Um, and that's strategy 101. We have these goals. Why haven't we reached them? Yeah. What should we do to reach yeah. them? The, the reflective component of it is, is, was a big deal too. Yeah. Know, the fact that someone was actually taking a critical look because the theological perspective stops at, well, it's God's will. <laughs> and apparently it's not God's will at this stage that jihadists will be successful. So our series novel for a couple of reasons. His basic assessment of why they hadn't been successful was that they had been running secret hierarchical organisations. And secret hierarchical organisations present in our series view at least, and I think this holds right across the board, two substantial problems. One, it's difficult to join. Yeah, so you might be super enthusiastic, totally believe in the cause, everything else. But unless you've got an uncle or a brother or a cousin or your imam happens to be, you know, uh, loosely affiliated with a, with a terrorist organisation, you have no capacity to, to get involved. You can protest and you can do the political bit, but if you actually want to fight, you can't get involved because it's a secret organisation. The other part is that it's hierarchical. And the problem that hierarchical organisations present and the irony of our series thought, which is essentially a legalist resistance model, was that it had been preempted by a guy by the name of Louis Beam, who was a white supremacist in the United States, who wrote a very, very short version of the same idea. And what it is is that a hierarchical organisation where the head of the organisation decides that we are going to attack this target on this day at this time with these explosives and you, you and you are going to put together the cell and here's the details of the guy you're going to contact for explosives and here's the guy who's going to send you some money for it. Yeah. Now, that's great and that's how you organise a large-scale mass casualty attack. Except that when counterterrorism authorities ping one of my foot soldiers and they map the communications trail that's been going on because when the head of that organisation decided that that wasn't going to happen, he told his subordinates, who told their subordinates, who told their subordinates, and I just mapped your entire organisation. And now I've arrested everyone and you're gone. When Louis Beam came up with the idea in the United States, it was because the American government had cracked down hard on white supremacists and yeah. right-wing terrorist organisations. This was in the late 80s. It's a structure that you implement because you're on the back foot. Yeah, All terrorist organisations would rather be putting together mass casualty plots. 
So our series prescription, to quote the English translation of his slogan, for lack of a better term, is system, not an organisation. We need to build a system. And his design was essentially three components. One is a sort of leadership nodule, a leadership node that is providing guidance and inspiration to the movement as a whole. This is the Che Guevara teacher component of your organisation. Somebody, it's Bin Laden, right? Even though he's dead, Bin Laden remains the, the romanticised figurehead of the jihadist movement. The second component is that you have open fronts. This is the terminology that, that Al-Suri uses. And this is Jared al-Nusra fighting in Syria. It's open... Like, An insurgency. It's conflict. It's guerrilla yeah. armies in yeah. conflict zones. And they have traditional guerrilla army structures because they're fighting in conflict zones. Mm -hmm. The important thing is that they have no direct relationship back to the leadership structure. The third component is what in, um, in horrible useless media language we would call lone wolf or homegrown terrorists but al-Suria refers to as individual and small cell jihadists and this again is the idea of completely decentralizing the organization building a system that provides them with all of the material that they will need for self-preparation and that's to quote his his text and <clears throat> essentially what we've seen manifest is exactly this and, but again in his ideal version they are clean skins so no intel national security or criminal footprint and what they do is they do exactly what we see happening now. They do small attacks with relatively basic capability because they've been told what they believe in and they've been told what they can and can't do and they've been told that they don't need to ask religious permissibility. And the contribution of this strategic thought to the way that jihadism has panned out since so December 2004, the global call to Islamic resistance went online, is, is, is cannot be underestimated because from our Suri we then get Al-Alaki and Al-Alaki and Wara Al-Alaki was an American born in Yemen but um, educated in the United States who took either directly or at least implicitly took our Suri's thinking and operationalizes it he grabs the internet and he leverages it. He is the first jihadi to really start to understand how not just static forum stuff works well. He had a Facebook page and a YouTube account. He speaks basic English. He speaks really clear, simple English. He takes complex ideas and he simplifies them to a, a non-Arabic speaking audience and he makes it accessible. You can still find his videos on YouTube. One of um, Al-Alaki's more significant or at least more well-known documents, 44 Ways to Support Jihad. If you type 44 Ways to into Google, one of the things that it suggests that you select as your search term yeah. is to support jihad. Yeah, Al-Alaki is, is enormously significant. The thing that Al-Alaki does more significantly than anything else is he is, um, with his partner in crime, Sami Khan, he establishes Inspire magazine. And Inspire magazine is a glossy PDF in English um, that amongst a whole range of other things is very, very well put together. The desktop publishing, well, it's well put together in comparison to its predecessors. In comparison to what a 12-year-old can do <laughs> on a computer today, it's, it's not that impressive. But compared to other terrorist organisation content, it is. Um, so on top of having pictures, which are far more visceral than just text, it has two key sections. One is an extract from the military doctrine that al-Suri wrote about how to organise jihadist organisations and overt advocation of individual jihad. It has sections called open source jihad, which the name speaks volumes of the shift in the way that the organisations are operating. 
um, which is how-to guides. So in the first edition, how to make a pressure cooker bomb. In the second edition, how to use a vehicle to run people down, and so on and so forth. Um, and um, initially, people were quite disparaging this. that anyone would do that. Going, you can't, you can't, who's going to try and run someone over in a car as a terrorist act? Who's going to try and make a bomb out of a pressure cooker? That's right. um, but unfortunately... Until they did. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> people have, and people have died as a result. They have, and increasingly, it's, it is the way that terrorist attacks take place in the Western world. Um, on top of this, in Al, in Al Alaki's um, preaching, which is primarily what he cut his teeth doing, yeah. um, which was preaching in English, uh, he was an overt and, um, and quite enthusiastic advocate of individual jihad, so of individual responsibility to participate and contribute to the jihad, and not individual contribution as in you need to come and join an organisation and fight, as in you have to do something and you need to do whatever you can. It picks up on a little bit of stuff that Abdullah Azam wrote about in, in the late in the late eighties and early nineties. Abdullah being a big theoretician of the anti Soviet jihad in yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah, so we can draw a line really from Abdullah Azam to Al Suri and then to Al Alaki. Al Alaki does less on the overt strategic stuff, but what he's doing is he's operationalizing ideas that have, have come before him. And Inspire magazine sort of goes on to become a really I think the sixteenth edition was released a few days ago with a pressure cooker bomb on the front cover. <laughs> um, and it's well put together and it gives you everything that you need. And I think the way that it's important to think about it, so there's a grab from MI5 that's a contribution to the report into the killing of Lee Rigby in yeah. Woolwich in 2013. Um, and one of the statements in there by MI5 is that of the 10 plots that had taken place in the United Kingdom since 2010 when uh, Inspire Magazine first came out, seven of them had Inspire Magazine as part of the plot and in four of those cases, according to MI5, this had substantially increased the capabilities of the people involved. Yeah. The thing to keep in mind though with Inspire and with much of the sort of wave of terrorism that we're seeing in the Western world right now is that that's taking people from no capability to slightly more. Yes. Yeah, so if I need to help you to work out, and to be fair, the case that was in the US courts recently with Janet Hussain, some of the questions being asked, which type of knife should I use? What type of duct tape? When we say that it enhances their capabilities, it takes a guy who is apparently seemingly useless, that he needs guidance on what to do. Um, and the same with the vehicle, right? Like if, if you, I'm not quite sure why I need someone to suggest this to me as a terrorist tactic. Well, it's partly to know that it's been endorsed by senior figures. I, I think that's mostly yeah. what, what Inspire does, is, is it offers you a, a stamp of yeah. approval that these tactics, the targets that are broadly suggested, the same way Adnani's, oh, your Lord, will ever, your Lord is ever watchful statement does, yeah. right? The following targets, the following tactics, etc., are all approved, and if you do something that looks like this, we will... Yeah. Alone it. And, and that lowers the barriers to entry. Yeah, yeah. Um, fortunately, doesn't always make the person that competent, which no. is why they, police can swoop in often. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and management of savagery is a slightly more sort of theatre of operations orientated document. Um, and ultimately, the management of savagery is about how do I use calculated levels of violence to maximise my return on investment. That's yeah. really what it's about. Um, and I say that glibly in part because the document's written. It's much like military doctrine, but without the sort of managerial speak around it, this is how you need to maximise terror in the areas that you control, and this is how you go about it. So a key thing there is it's less about 
how to carry out an attack, you know, in the West or something individually. Yeah. It's about controlling territory. It is. It's it about, is. Uh, you know, it's believed to be partly a guide for what ISIS later did in Iraq and Syria. Yeah, and at least according to certainly to a number of American analysts, guys like Michael Ryan, um, between the management of savagery and our series Global Islamic Resistance Call, that's pretty much the blueprint for Islamic State in, in Syria and Iraq. Um, and what you can see particularly from the influence of our Suri is that what you have in Syria and Iraq, and if you look at ISIS from a global perspective, is all three of those elements I described before. You've got a leadership structure of sorts, you know, put Bin Laden to one side for a moment. You've got Baghdadi and Adnani, and had Adnani and Baghdadi and a, a few others as the sort of key guidance figures of the organisation. You've got an open front in Syria and in Iraq, plus all of your Walayats, yeah, provinces from the Philippines to Libya or wherever. And then, most importantly, so that you can give this impression to your potential sympathisers and supporters and members is this impression that you are active behind enemy lines, essentially. I'm managing to do stuff in France on a large scale, in the United States on a substantive scale, here in Indonesia, yeah. And this is, literally, you can see our series strategy mapped out in the way that Islamic State have organised themselves and the way that they've undertaken operations globally. Um, so, Al Suri, Al Alaki, and Al Naji. Al Naji are um, you know, really that kind of strategic, calculated content is of far more utility to an organisation whose purpose is violence than, yeah. than you know, thank you for your theological tracts about how this is all permissible and that God will take care of it all. I'm going to be sitting over here working out how we're actually going to achieve this stuff. And that's what those guys did. Okay, so we're talking a lot there about the rise of Islamic State and such, which has shaped the threat in Australia mm -hmm. a lot. So I just want to sort of briefly trace that, because we were talking about Neith. And after Neith, for about five years, we didn't have another proven jihadist terror plot in Australia. And if anything, seems things seem to die down a bit. We had a few people going over to Yemen and Lebanon and Somalia and stuff still. Not very much. And to be fair, this was a sensibility right across the Western world. Absolutely. Where, you know, the White House had made determinations that, you know, the, the, the things had... I think that Al-Qaeda was, you know, nine-tenths... Facing strategic defeat, I think, may have yeah, been Obama's yeah, words. Yeah. And been, here, we had yeah. the same. So um, the Prime Minister at the time decided that the age of terror was, was over. Yeah, it was, in, terminology. it was in, I think, January 2013. Um, Julie Gillard yeah. said the 9-11 decade is over. Yeah, well, it was just national security strategy. Yeah. And uh, as tends to be the case with these things. Yes, As everyone decides that things are over. Yes. <laughs> unfortunately, the, I mean, the whole history of national security is threats either being overestimated or underestimated at particular points. And pendulum swinging backwards and forth. Yes, yes. Um, and seemingly no one sent the memo to Syria, so... Okay, that's the first half of this conversation. In the uh, next episode, we're going to continue this and we discuss how the terrorism threat in Australia has developed from 2013 onwards and some of the debates about different counterterrorism measures. See you then.